Boncast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Mokra and I'm joined today by our global market specialist, Giles Gale, Ross Walker and John Lombrizzi. Right, I said last week I wasn't going to start off by saying what a busy week, but I really can't help myself today. <laughs> We're recording this on Thursday fresh after uh, the Bank of England and the ECB. So I'm going to go straight to Ross, our Bank of England expert. We're very lucky to have you on today uh, to talk about the Bank of England because they came first. Um, What did we really learn from uh, Governor Bailey and the Bank of England today? So they delivered the quarter point rate rise that was pretty much universally expected and pretty much fully priced in. But that was really where the, the predictability ended. Um, On the vote, we had four dissenters who wanted a larger 50 basis point rise immediately. Uh, But then against that, you had uh, a set of forecasts and and policy guidance that really was fundamentally more dovish. And so how do you square that circle? We we think the signal is that they they want faster, more preemptive rises in bank rate uh, with a view to limiting the extent to which bank rate has to rise. Um, so it, if you look at market pricing, the first bit of that is, um, is consistent with what markets expect, um, a succession of faster rate rises. But whether in reality that is going to be enough to, uh, to bring inflation back to target as the BOE projects remains to be seen. And, and certainly there are a lot of other moving parts in the UK economy at the moment, sizable tax rises. Uh, about to hit energy price rises feeding through now. So uh, the the outlook, I think, is more uncertain. So you mentioned um, faster rate rises and a kind of lower peak. What does that really imply for your bank rate forecast from here? Are we talking about, you know, a March hike, another hike in March? And then how is that followed up for for the rest of the year and, and beyond, really? Yeah, so we've had to, um, our, our bank rate forecast has, has undergone some major surgery uh, today. So uh, I think a quarter point rise at the next meeting in March looks very likely. That would require just one additional MPC member uh, to, to move, which, which really isn't a big ask, particularly as one of the four dissenters was Jonathan Haskell, who previously was, was one of the more dovish members. Uh, so a quarter point rise in March to 0.75%. The meeting after that in May is is another quarterly forecast round. That would be an obvious point to raise rates again in in, in the context of an updated forecast. Uh, So you're you're then at 1%, and then we look for a quarter point rise in August to one and a quarter percent. And essentially that is where we had the, the peak on our previous forecast, albeit that was in spring 2023 and we're now seeing that in in the summer of this year that really just is a kind of acceleration of that forecast then okay so a a fairly big shift in our kind of front-end rate forecast what does that mean further out the curve you know we've had this 10-year gilts target of 135 um, we kind of hit that briefly during the Bank of England and then the hawkish ECB, which we will get to, kind of has now taken us through that target. Um, what's the direction of travel from here? Further rises in rates or, or kind of settles around 135? I, I think so. We see uh, further upward move in, in 10-year yields. You have obviously at the front end, you've got policy tightening globally, inflation pressures, uh, look, look greater, underlying inflation pressures look greater than expected. So we're sort of looking for that 10-year 
gilt yield to uh, hit 1.6% by around the end of this year. I think there's probably scope for some further increases uh, in, in yields, certainly in the first half of next year. So uh, a further rise to around one and three quarter percent is what we're now targeting. Yeah, that sounds pretty consistent, I guess, with what we're seeing across um, the US and Europe as well. And in Europe, we're now excitingly a little bit closer to that positive 0.5% yield target. Um, thanks to Lagarde today. So over to you, Giles. Um, we'd kind of thought, you know, at the beginning of this year that this was actually going to be a, a pretty unexciting meeting. Um, they laid out the taper path in December. It's not one of the quarterly meetings where we get updated forecasts, um, but it actually turned out to really be anything but that. Um, so what were your key takeaways from Lagarde today? Well, okay, so the number one takeaway was obviously hawkish. She was very hawkish. And, you know, as you said, in December, they laid out basically a roadmap for a full year ahead, which, you know, I mean, given how much economic volatility and uncertainty there is out there at the moment, I think was probably a little bit heroic, but you know when you're trying to you know, to turn what do you call it like a um, an oil tanker around, you know you sort of you're trying to do it uh, relatively carefully. And you know, what we heard today was essentially that um, you know I mean I, they they always emphasised the fact that they wanted to be flexible, but obviously when you lay down a fairly detailed roadmap a year ahead, um, marrying that and convincing people that you really want to be flexible at the same time. <laughs> it's a little bit of a, a balancing act. Um, no, today it was all about flexibility. They've clearly been spooked by, um, by you know, recent inflation data and you know, they, uh, you know, they, they, they've essentially just joined, they've joined the pack and you know, they are very clearly on a on a tightening path, and you know, that is this year's business. What does that really mean then, when you say a tightening path? You know, I guess compared to the kind of taper schedule that they laid out in December, how much faster do we realistically think that they can taper from here? Right. So previously, what they'd said is you know, quarter by quarter. So starting in March, they would step down from you know, their current pace and you know, call it. The, 70, 80 billion per month down to 40, and then in June down to 30, then in September down to 20, and then they just kind of you know, stay that, that, that they figured that they'd stay there until you know, they thought that they might need to raise rates um, at some point, in, you know, presumably next year. Now, I think it, you know, it looks increasingly likely, probably likely, to be honest with you, that they accelerate that, as you're saying. And so what does that mean? I mean, I, you know, I suppose because they, you know, she was really, again, it's important to emphasize, they need to finish QE before they start raising rates, okay? And I think that most people understand this now, but the number of times it comes up in conversations, you know, it does bear repeating. So if they're going to get to a rate rise later, later this year, they need to be ending QE in September, maybe even, even June. How, what does that look like? I mean. Now, let's be serious about this. If they're going to if they're going to be raising rates in September and stopping rate, you know, stopping QE in in June, well, no, they probably need to be tapering to thirty billion or something like that in in March, and then just stopping. Um, that would be, I think, 
excessively aggressive. So what we have just penciled in, um, you and I, is um, a path that looks like 40 billion um, from March, step down to 20, um, and then end in September, and then that sets you up potentially um, conditions allowing and so on for that expected uh, December rate hike. The markets have moved pretty quickly, I guess, even before the ECB, but certainly during the, the press conference and afterwards. And they're now looking for, well, depending on what you think about first rate hikes, whether they go 10 basis points or 25 basis points. But if you're looking at 10 basis points, they have the first rate hike priced in by June and actually two full 25 basis point hikes. That is getting the depot rate back to zero um, by December of, of, next, of this year, sorry, <laughs> December 2022. So am I to infer from your, you know, our, our taper timeline and, and what you've just said about rate hikes, obviously coming after net asset purchases, um, that you think that markets have got a bit ahead of themselves in terms of pricing in that, that rate hike from the ECB? Yes, you are to infer that. <laughs> We think that the markets have got way to it. I mean, let me just qualify that a little bit and just talk a little bit about the details here. There's a liquidity effect, okay, which um, I think people are a little bit confused about how much they should really accord to that. And I think that that probably explains quite a lot of what you see in, uh, in terms of in a higher impl- higher implied short rates in as in market short rates rather than policy short rates in June okay um, nonetheless you know, we've done our analysis as you would expect and you know, we don't think that that liquidity effect is worth 10 basis points or anything approaching that you know, more like you know, two or three basis points okay so yeah you know you look at that path and conclude that the markets really do, appear to believe that the policy rate will be back around zero, at least a substantial probability of that by the end of this year. And uh, I really, really struggle to see that. Uh, So yeah, and just on the other thing, size of a rate hike, it seems like the market has just gone way past any thoughts of 10 basis point rate hikes, now fully signed up to the idea that it's 25. 25 bips twice in December. We've gone pretty far in the last couple of years. 50 basis, 50 basis points in December. I guess the only other final point really around the ECB, just to wrap up that discussion, is um, anything on TLTROs or, um, you know, as you were talking about the kind of liquidity effect there, is, is there anything new um, that we learned today about that that would change our view on, I guess, you know, the repayment schedule or how liquidity might change over the year ahead? No, no, there wasn't. Um, no, I think we you know, we were debating whether we, the expectation that they will recalibrate that clearing multiplier remains there. We're not quite sure why they're dragging their heels on it. We were debating whether that, you know, should come in March or, or even June. It seems like the, the, you know, they, they seem to be implicitly linking a decision on that to the end of the TLTRO incentive rates, which, um, which uh, happens in, in June this year. So maybe, maybe possibly it's, it's June for, for decisions around that um, in the air, who knows. 
Great, thank you. All right, let's move on to the US then, because um, I have to acknowledge the fact that every four weeks, Jan gets the worst job in the world of having to record the podcast on Thursday afternoon, right before NFPs on a Friday. Uh, and usually we publish the podcast right as NFPs are also published. Um, but Jan, I'm not going to let you off the hook today because I think ADPs was probably one of the more important data prints that we've had um, this week. And obviously that was a big surprise to the downside how does that leave you with regard to um i guess looking at nfps tomorrow and also with reference to the kind of outlook for the fed over the next couple of weeks or months the adp data was certainly the key point from this week and it's hard to deny it. It, the expectations were wide-ranging the consensus was pretty there was no really consensus i mean the distribution of the possibilities of forecasts were uh, so wide but what we ended up having was a decline of, uh, at, at the time, like 300,000, slightly over 300,000 jobs, as opposed to the median forecast, which was an increase of 180,000. So it's very clear that the Omicron var variant has caused slowdown in activity or unemployment, or just in general, uh, people staying away from work. To translate that into the non-farm payrolls, it's a little bit more difficult because especially since the beginning of the pandemic, those two, the ADP survey and the, uh, the BLS survey have not really tracked that well. But it's still hard to argue that there is going to be an impact from the Omicron. And we've also heard from the White House coming out saying this jobs report is going to be bad. Given they don't have the data yet, they will get it uh, by Thursday. But still, even before we heard that the data is not going to be good, and that's a, as reliable as a source as it gets, pretty much. So... We have revised our uh, non-farm uh, forecasts now from positive 165 to negative 350,000 decline. So it's a, it's a big drop. As far as the policy reaction goes from, uh, from the Fed, does this matter? Yes, of course, it's something that's really high up on their, on their dashboard. However, I don't think it really changes anything for March. They are on a path to hike. And as we uh, talked about it last time too, they're likely to hike a 25 basis point, uh, deliver a 25 basis point rate hike. And it's very, for me, it's really hard to imagine how they would get derailed from that path. It, it wouldn't be a weak jobs number. It has to be something consistently and a, a tail risk, which is by definition, I can't really define it now. So it has to be something that we really, really don't have as a possibility for them to go off track. So I don't think this specific number is going to change the path. But if we get a couple of weak numbers, the inflation really starts showing weakness. Although even with weakness, we were still going to get, uh, you know, in the six handle numbers uh, for inflation, the Fed's going to hide. What they have flexibility in my mind is spreading out the rate hikes a little bit more. So not necessarily March, May, June, if that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely does. And, and you've already sort of answered the first part of this question and what you just said around, you know, you, your base cases, you still think nailed on for a 25 basis point hike in March. How do you sit now on the 25 versus 50 basis point debate? I know I asked you last week, it's been a kind of topic of big conversation again this week. And now we've just had a day of, of central banks that really outhawked what we were expecting in most respects. Does that change how you're thinking about the Fed? You know, does that risk making them even more hawkish to kind of keep up with this hawkish shift that we're seeing globally from central banks? Or are you still comfortable that 25 basis points is, is the right kind of pace per meeting or, or um, per quarter or, or however we're looking at this that they go? 
I'm, I'm still comfortable with 25 basis points. And when we discussed this last week, one of the topics that we touched upon was how uh, Chairman Powell in his press conference said that, said that he's happy the way financial markets are interpreting the communication from the Fed. And that communication is usually through FOMC officials going out there and slowly delivering uh, bit by bit the missing uh, parts of what we didn't fully understand from the press conference. So this time, uh, and this will be repeating a little bit what I said last uh, during the last podcast, but uh, Powell out there was saying he didn't outright deny the need for 50, a possibility for a 50 basis point hike, but he didn't embrace it either. In our view, that's just going to be reserved for a scenario where inflation, for example, spirals out of control. They have been on the wrong side of inflation forecasts for a while. So I, I think at this stage, they're not willing to discard any possibility. What if inflation comes with like an eight handle, something crazy, like a nine handle, who knows? We don't, that's not in our, in our forecast, but it could happen. And in that case, if you see inflation expectations sort of spiraling out, you might want to, you might want to you know, think about outsized hikes. But what happened since was uh, FMC officials coming out and saying, even the more hawkish ones, like Bullard, uh, coming out and saying, I don't see a need for a 50 basis point hike at this point. Uh, Atlanta's president Bostic said uh, after his Financial Times article, which justified a possibility for a 50 basis point hike, right after that, he comes out in a press conference saying, I don't think it's necessary. So that communication channel is working as we mentioned, uh, as he mentioned. Uh, and us too, I guess. Uh, and <laughs> it, it is working and it is going to the markets. They're still a little bit pricing for a 50 basis point uh, hike, but like I mentioned, I, I just don't think it is necessary. I think they would prefer to go for a longer and regular controlled increments, uh, increments nimble, as they said. Almost the opposite of the Bank of England then. We've got one bank super front loading and, and one on free opting for the more gradual approach. All right, then finally, um, just while we're on the US, I guess away from central banks, but the other um, uh, announcements that we had this week was the quarterly refunding. Um, if you could just kind of take us through what, what your key takeaways were um, and, and whether the, I guess, changes to the bucket were in line with what you and, and markets were expecting and, and really where that just leaves your, your treasury view from here. Yeah, the refunding, I know everyone every quarter is just waiting for this update, but this time it, there was a lot less ambiguity around uh, what could have been delivered. And that's exactly what happened. The cuts in coupon auction sizes uh, were exactly the same as in November, just to start with the largest ones, 4 billion in the 20 year sector, which has been underperforming since its uh, introduction in 2020, 3 billion in sevens and 2 billion across the rest of the lines. So that's exactly the same as in November, like I said. And the reason Treasury is doing this, just for a little bit of a background refresher, is that during COVID, Treasury really ramped up the issuance and, and coupons, which now, given the a lower need, a lower funding needs, leaves them a lot really overfunded. So they have to reduce these uh, at least until the half of this year. So we expect another uh, series of cuts in May. Our expectations were. Uh, largely in, in line with what we got. We expected slightly less in 20, so about 3 billion, just because assumed if we, if they couple, cut it a couple more times, this sector is going to get too small, but that's exactly what Treasury seems to want. And it could be the, the factor that tips the, the sector into a little bit better performance. And the, the, you know, the price action since the announcement has been sort of supportive of that view. The other change was the tips uh, auction for uh, 
for the five-year tips auction is going to increase by another billion. That is against uh, also not not in line with what we expected at this point. It seems like the market has had enough inflation uh, supply. There is demand for inflation, yes, but it's mostly focused on the front end, which uh, auctions are not going to really deliver. And there has been some signs of outflows that you can see from ETFs, tips ETFs. Uh, that we didn't expect, but we would imagine this would be the final bump in tips auction size, and after that, to flatline. And finally, the finance, financing estimates show that the bill supply will be uh, will fall in the second quarter. We can deduct that uh, impl uh, implicitly from the financing estimates, how much we know they're going to issue in coupons along with the maturing securities. It indicates about a 300 billion decrease in, in the second quarter by the uh, in bill form. So with that in mind, cuts, we think now are likely to end in May because the the elephant in room for funding this year is going to be the quantitative tightening, the rundown on the balance sheet. Whatever the Fed decides to run down, the Treasury has to issue on the other hand. So our expectation is initially to see an increase in bills to face those outflows, uh, which would make the second half of the year a uh, resurgence of the bill issuance. Perfect. Thank you. All right, guys, I think that's probably all we've got time for. And I don't know about you, but I'm absolutely exhausted after today. So um, we'll sign this one off. And just a reminder to our listeners, that if they like today's episode, then please don't forget to hit subscribe uh, so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. See you all next week. Bye.